readings tonight are a little bit all over the place in Nehemiah, so if you want to get it open, you can, but you might find it easier to look at the screen. Uh, So starting at Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in the holy city of Jerusalem, while nine-tenths remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all those who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with rejoicing, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. The companies of the singers gathered gathered together from the circuit around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. I warned them at that time against selling food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I remonstrated with the nobles of Judah And said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did you not did not your ancestors act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. When it began to be dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should not should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I set some of my servants over the gates to prevent any burden from being brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favour, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke the language of various peoples. And I contended with them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, 
foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoda, son of the high priest Elishib, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. I chased him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood, the covenant of the priests and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything, everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offerings at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Our second reading is in James uh, chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Richard. Great to meet you. If I haven't met you before, uh, I'm the site pastor here at St. John's in Ashfield, one of three uh, sites that makes up Christchurch in the West, along with St. Oswald's in Haverfield and St. Albans in Five Dock. Uh, and it's my uh, privilege and pleasure to uh, open God's Word for us this evening as we uh, dig into that uh, passage, those sections that we had read um, from Nehemiah 11 to 13. Uh, I live, uh, as many of you will know, uh, with my wife, Alison, and our uh, two daughters, Maggie and Lucy, they're four and two, uh, and we have a housemate as well, uh, our friend Laura, uh, who's been uh, a dear friend of ours for a very long time. Uh, it's quite a peaceful house for the most part. I mean, as peaceful as it can be when there's a four-year-old and a two-year-old living in the house, uh, but it's a pretty peaceful house. We get along pretty well. We've all known each other a long time. Uh, but there is one thing uh, that continues to be a little bit of a sticking point uh, between the grown-ups in the house. Uh, and that is whether or not to lock the door. I don't know if any of you have this in your house. Laura, our housemate, lock the door. Always lock the door. We use the kind of side entrance at our place. We come in kind of through the side gate and up the back veranda. It's, you know, and given the door's not locked very often, this is probably a dangerous thing to tell you, especially when we're live streaming. But, you know, if you come to our house and you want to burgle it or whatever, come in the side gate, come across the veranda at the back door. The address is... No, you don't. It's awkward. Um, uh, we use the kind of side door there, and uh, I unlike Laura, just never think to, unlock, to lock the door. It's just always unlocked. I mean, why would you bother locking it? No one's going to come in. It's all good. Laura, though, thinks that I'm a total muppet for not locking the door every time I go out. Uh, half the time, you know, I'm, uh, I'm working in the church office over here and I walk across to grab some lunch or something. No one else is home. Why would I lock the door when I walk back to the office? I'm just there and you know, I might want to come back in and what a pain to have to unlock the door every time. I just don't care about locking doors. Uh, Laura and Alison, to a lesser degree as well, really want the door locked for the obvious reason, right? It's a security issue. You don't want someone just walking into your house if they want to kind of have a look around or take something. It's a security issue. Why would you, why, you, know, why would you leave the door unlocked? That's kind of stupid. Whereas it just doesn't even occur to me. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, people aren't that bad. Probably no one's going to walk in. We'll be fine. Uh, you see, I'm instinctively a, a leave-the-door-unlocked kind of person. Uh, Alison and Laura as well are, uh, are both really kind of instinctively lock-the-door people. Uh, I wonder which way you lean. 
I got actually accosted after the service at 10 a.m. this morning with someone saying, Richard, you have to lock the door, and let me tell you why. Just trying to convert me to, to door locking. Which one are you? I don't know. A door, door's locked person or a door's unlocked person? Our doors are all about keeping what's meant to be inside in and what's meant to be outside out. They're boundaries. Uh, but of course, doors are boundaries that we can choose to open or close. Doors help us actually relate to the world outside us by letting in what we want to have inside and by keeping out things that threaten. And that's true, actually not just physically, but but culturally and even spiritually for us as well. Uh, This was the issue for Nehemiah all those centuries ago in Jerusalem. How are God's people to relate to the world? Were they they to be open to the world or closed to the world? Uh, But where homes have doors, of course, cities have gates. And in these final chapters of Nehemiah, it's the gates of Jerusalem that come into focus as the point where God's people and the world around them interact. Uh, How did we get here? We're coming to the end of this series in the book of Nehemiah. How did we actually arrive uh, here at this point, all about gates this evening? Uh, Well, back in chapter 12, we actually get to the high point of the book. We read a little bit of it uh, this evening. Uh, The wall was completed back in chapter 6. In chapter 11, people moved back into the city to live in it and repopulate it. And now in chapter 12, it's dedicated in a big ceremony. People kind of walk around the edges and sing and all those kinds of things. It's a big celebration with the priests and the musicians walking the length of the wall. Uh, if, if you were going to like, stage a big action movie or a kind of a Hollywood blockbuster classic, this would be the end of the film, the massive kind of climax right, where everything turns out the way it's supposed to. It fills the people with great joy. It's an awesome scene. The reason, of course, is that the wall is a physical and tangible reminder to God's people of his faithfulness to his promise, the promise of restoration after exile, which had uh, kind of energised Nehemiah's prayers for his people way back in chapter 1. That promise that you might remember that's embedded in Nehemiah's own name, his name which means the Lord brings comfort. God was going to comfort his people after their trials in exile and rebuilding the wall was a a kind of physical reminder, a tangible instance of God protecting and restoring his people. You've got to remember though, it was never about the wall, was it? The wall isn't the real thing actually that this is all about. The rebuilding of the wall was a means of rebuilding God's people. And in the final chapter of the book, chapter 13, Nehemiah shows us that that rebuilding the wall and the city itself is actually not enough to guarantee the rebuilding of God's people. In fact, what we see in this chapter is that God's people immediately begin to compromise and disobey the very promises that they'd made to God in chapter 10. And so the Hollywood climax of the story in chapter 12, the dedication of the walls, kind of quickly descends into a a great big anti-climax at the end of the book. Despite the walls that they've built, despite the gates they have there to close to the world around them, God's people have let in just a bit too much of the world, and it's compromised their devotion to God. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he closes the gates, doesn't he? Chapter 13, verse 19. When it began to be dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut, and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. Uh, What Nehemiah is worried about here is the integrity of God's people. He knows that the world around them has the potential to compromise their devotion to God, and he's determined not to let that happen. So the chapters pose a question for each of us, actually. When it it comes to the world around you, are are you instinctively a gates-open person or a gates-closed person? And what's that going to mean, actually, for your devotion to your Lord? 
Uh, Beyond that question, these chapters actually suggest a a kind of model for us of how to engage the world around us while maintaining our devotion to God. Uh, A model that doesn't actually just say closed or open, but teaches us how to use the gates that are available to us in order to engage positively and productively with the world and stay faithful to our God. So we're going to see how all of that works uh, under three headings. I don't have them on the screen for you tonight, so you're going to have to listen. You'll remember the number at least. There's three. Just think, you know, that's a shock. I know. Three points. Uh, Firstly, why we need gates. Secondly, how to use gates. And thirdly, what's inside the gates. Why we need gates, how to use gates, and what's inside the gates. Point one, why do we need gates? Uh, The first element of Nehemiah's uh, model for engaging the world faithfully is those gates themselves. Uh, In the first part of chapter 13, we didn't read this bit, uh, it's the temple gates particularly that are on view. Uh, Not the gates of the city as a whole, but the gates of the temple where God was worshipped in the middle of the city. Uh, God's people had been allowing Ammonites and Moabites, uh, people who the law of Moses had said couldn't come into the temple precinct uh, to go in there and, you know, do their thing. Uh, Then in the next section, uh, uh, verses 4 to 10, we read that the priest uh, Elisha has given a room in the temple to a guy called Tobiah. Uh, You might remember, if you've been reading along with Nehemiah, that he's one of the guys who actively worked against Nehemiah and his project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem earlier in the book. And all of a sudden, he's given a place to stay in the palace, in the temple. Uh, As a result, uh, in the the next section of chapter 13, the Levites, the temple singers and the gatekeepers had to go back to their family farms because actually the temple was no longer supporting them. It was being used for housing Tobiah and other things instead of the worship of God. And because they'd all returned to their farms, the worship of God and the temple had stopped functioning the way it was supposed to. Uh, then in the next verses, the, chapter, uh, the section of chapter 13 that we had read for us this evening, uh, the people of God compromised the Sabbath day, essentially in order to grease the, wo- the wheels of commerce, to keep their trading going, even on the day when it's supposed to stop. And it's that, in the end, that moves Nehemiah to close the city gates. Uh, finally, Nehemiah engages in uh, a, a less uh, kind of literal kind of gatekeeping, uh, but a form of gatekeeping nonetheless. He rebukes and publicly shames those Israelites who had broken their promise not to marry outside of the Israelite community. And it's in that interaction, actually, that the reason Nehemiah cares so much about gatekeeping becomes clear. Uh, Just like King Solomon in the past, he says, the Israelites' mixed marriages were leading them away from devotion to God. Uh, Now, the reason for that isn't actually that uh, the Bible says that kind of foreign nations are bad or anything like that. But it's that actually in the days of ancient Israel, each nation had their own god or gods. And to actually uh, yoke yourself, to enter into a relationship with, uh, particularly an intimate married relationship with someone from another nation, uh, had to mean adopting their gods as well, along with yours. Uh, There are people, even in Nehemiah, of course, who do come to worship the true and living God who's worshipped by Israel. And the way they do that is is by becoming, essentially, Israelites and joining their community. To marry outside of that community was to indicate that actually you weren't set on devotion to the God of Israel, but you were willing to compromise on that. In all of this, what we see is that Nehemiah is convinced that the world can compromise our devotion to God. And he isn't alone in this, actually. The New Testament shares this same concern. Let me give you some examples. And the first is from the book of James, uh, which Stephanie read for us. Uh, James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to care for orphans and widows in their distress. So far, so good. Everyone likes that bit. And, he continues, 
to keep oneself unstained by the world. The world can stain us. You see uh, here the same concern uh, expressed by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What fellowship, he writes, is there between light and darkness? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? And quoting the prophet Isaiah, he says, Therefore come out from them and separate from them, says the Lord. Uh, Not just James, not just Paul, the Apostle John as well, 1 John chapter 2. Don't love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. Uh, And of course, it's not just the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, but Jesus himself who has this concern. Uh, Here's what he says explaining the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Are those sown among the thorns? These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing. You can hear the word of God, and yet the world can choke you. What this is painting a picture of for us here is that actually we need gates. There are things that we really do need to keep out, things that we need to separate ourselves from if we're going to be faithful to our God. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are squirming in your seats right now as you hear this. I can tell. I know. It's because I do when I read this kind of stuff as well. We live in a culture, particularly here in the inner west of Sydney, right, where this is a really awkward point to make. We pride ourselves on our tolerance and open-mindedness, and actually, in lots of ways, that's a really, really good thing. And so to talk about shutting the gates to the world around us is actually pretty awkward. And yet, the fact of the matter is that even here in the inner west, we know that we need gates, and we shut them whenever we feel like we need to. We draw our own lines, even if they're not the same lines that ancient Israel drew. Uh, Here in the inner west, some of the obvious gates that we like to keep closed, right? You see them in the public shaming and refusal to engage with people who think differently to the mainstream about issues like climate change or sexuality and gender. Uh, Another form it takes is uh, the way we define particular people by their past sins and actions. Someone makes a racist or sexist comment on Twitter, that's what defines them as a person forever. There's no chance of redemption. Uh, We shut the gates to these people so that we can keep them outside. Uh, On a more directly personal level, there's a a tendency, I think, in our culture uh, to decide to cut out a friend or even a family member if uh, they don't actually uh, give us uh, our felt needs anymore. They're not a healthy person for me. I'm going to close that gate. Now, if you just think back uh, through that uh, list of issues that I've just kind of put out before you, you'll notice that uh, some of those examples of gate shutting, some of you will will see, are good and justified, right? That's That's a gate that's worth shutting. That's an important thing. And others are actually just kind of a bit of a silly overreaction. And if we sat down actually and compared our list of which thing ended up on which of those lists, we probably actually wouldn't all agree about all of those things. Uh, The point I'm trying to make is not that these things are good things or bad things, simply that uh, actually even here in the ultra-tolerant, open-minded inner West, we have walls. We use gates to keep things out that we think should be out and to keep things in that we think should be kept in. We all know this, actually. We need gates. Uh, And since we all know that, the question actually we need to ask is, which gates should we close and when should we close them? That's where we're going to go now in uh, point two. How do we use gates? Uh, These chapters here in Nehemiah actually give us a few pointers about which gates to close and when to close them. Uh, Firstly, when. 
Uh, Notice that Nehemiah doesn't actually order the gates to be permanently closed. Uh, Nehemiah 13 verse 19, let me read it for you again. Uh, When it began to be dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. Uh, You see, the gates weren't actually closed all the time. They were closed only on the Sabbath. Presumably, the gates during the daylight hours were actually just open all the time apart from this one day. Uh, Nehemiah himself reiterates that point uh, to the people who'd previously been coming into Jerusalem to sell their wares on the Sabbath. Verse 20, Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem once or twice. Why once or twice? See in the next verse. I warned them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. He's a bit of a fierce dude, isn't he, this Nehemiah guy? And so, of course, they're like, you know, I'm not going to keep hanging outside the walls. This guy's going to beat me up. Uh, From that time on, uh, he continues, they did not come on the Sabbath. There you go. They've learned their lesson. Uh, Essentially, Nehemiah says, uh, seriously, guys, any other time is fine. Any other day of the week is okay. But not this day. The gates are closed. Don't come and hang out here on the Sabbath. What this picture paints for us, right, is that that actually uh, the gates of Jerusalem were generally open to the world around them. Uh, It's not that the world outside Jerusalem was straightforwardly evil and to be constantly avoided. In fact, the same gates that kept the merchants out on the Sabbath allowed a number of non-Israelites to come into the city and not just trade there, but to live there. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 16. Tyrians also. Do you have any friends who are Tyrians? Probably not. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and in Jerusalem. Uh, For Nehemiah, it seems there's no problem with these foreigners living in the city. The problem is the buying and selling that they do on the Sabbath. The gates are open to them, you see, except for selling on that day. There's a kind of gates open bias actually here. Uh, And actually, uh, it's an overall positive attitude toward the world, which is reflected throughout the scriptures. Uh, Just think of uh, Jesus happily turning water into wine at a wedding. Sometimes when you hear some Christians talk about things, you just kind of imagine that if Jesus is the guy they're following, he's going to go, no, 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 no more wine for you. That's enough. No. No, he turns the stuff into, like he enjoys the good things of the world, right? Or you might think of Paul uh, writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, Paul writes, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected provided it's received with thanksgiving for it's sanctified by God's word and by prayer. And so you see, there's actually this bias in the scriptures uh, toward a gates open kind of policy, a hopeful attitude towards the world. Uh, The gates are generally open in Jerusalem and only sometimes closed. And when they're closed, they're closed in order to target specific issues for specific reasons. Uh, Trading on the Sabbath, you see, compromised Israel's dependence on God. The whole point of the Sabbath was to say, actually, God's the one who provides for us. And if we don't work for a day, we'll be fine. He'll look after us. But by refusing to stop working and trading every day of the week, just like the world around them, Israel have forgotten that it's God who provides for their needs. They've lost their dependence on him. In a similar kind of way, marrying foreigners compromised Israel's devotion to God. By refusing to marry within God's people, they're allowing the gods worshipped by the world around them into their own families and homes and city. Dependence and devotion, these are the things that are compromised by Israel. And so we've got to ask ourselves, are there ways in which 
you might be compromising your dependence on and devotion to God. And if there are, what gates do you need to close? Uh, do you maybe need to close uh, the gate to the idea that your security is in a good, uh, a good income and owning a home? Do you need perhaps to close the gate to the expectation that romance and marriage will solve every one of your emotional needs? Do you need to close the gate to the comparison game that if my life or my body looks like that, then all of a sudden I'd be happy? These are the kinds of things that you'll hear from the world around you. And they're the kinds of things that you need to shut the gate to. All they will do is compromise your dependence on God and your devotion to him. Uh, I know that some people here at St. John's uh, have tackled some of these issues uh, by closing the gate to the metaverse. The metaverse is a thing now, apparently. That's a thing. Um, There's some company or something. Uh, Closing the gates to the metaverse, right? So uh, some young men uh, who I know are here at church who've switched off their social media accounts simply because it presented too many temptations to give in to lust to let that worldliness into their hearts and their lives. I know young women as well who've done exactly the same because it compromises how they view their own bodies as they see other people parading their bodies around on social media. And I know uh, others, particularly actually some of the young mums in the morning congregations, uh, who've gotten off social media altogether because looking all the time at the beautiful curated lives of others on social media has provided too much fuel for jealousy and dissatisfaction. And they're just in a place where actually they they can't look at that and not actually have thoughts in their hearts that actually they know if they're devoted to Jesus, they shouldn't have. Where are the points of compromise for you? What gates might you need to close? Of course, it isn't always an option to just withdraw from things that might compromise us. You can delete an app from your phone or switch off notifications, but you can't do that with most things in life, can you? You see, we need to be able to be in the world without letting it overwhelm us. And Nehemiah can help us here as well. Uh, When he zeroes in on this issue of Israel's mixed marriages, uh, we see that his focus isn't actually quite where we might expect it to be at first glance. Let me read for you Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 23. Uh, In those days also I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. You see, Nehemiah's concern here isn't simply that God's people have disobeyed the promise they made to him in chapter 10 and have disobeyed the law that he's handed down to them about marrying people from these other nations. His concern isn't simply about law-breaking. He's concerned here that the children produced by these marriages can't speak Hebrew anymore. Half of them can only speak the language of Ashdod. Why does that matter? Well, their their Hebrew language, their fluency in the Hebrew language matters because, as we've seen throughout the book of Nehemiah, the word of God is central to the life of his people. All the way through this book and the book of Ezra before it, Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the city planner, uh, are trying to actually help Israel hear the law, hear the word of God, and put it into practice in their lives. Now, in Nehemiah's day, you had to be able to read and speak Hebrew in order to engage with the word of God. And by entering into mixed marriages, God's people were putting their children in a situation where they risked no longer being able to engage meaningfully with God's word. They were no longer fluent in Hebrew, and that meant that to some degree they were at risk of no longer being fluent in God. Uh, At one level, of course, you and I don't have that same language problem. Uh, We don't have uh, uh, the need to know ancient Hebrew or ancient Greek to read the Old and New Testaments. We've got a bunch of really, really great, faithfully translated English versions of the Bible, just like the one we heard read this evening and the one I've been quoting from. 
You don't need to be able to speak the language of the ancient Hebrews. But on another level, you and I actually have exactly the same language problem, a fluency problem. If we don't sometimes close the gates to the world around us in a targeted kind of way, what we risk is not being fluent in the gospel. Nehemiah was concerned about Hebrew fluency. We need to be concerned about gospel fluency. Uh, That is, to be faithful to God and to remain faithful to God, we need to be able to see how the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, gives shape to every part of our lives. To to know the gospel in our hearts so well and to be so good at seeing how it connects with our lives that we can say, this is how it's going to shape this particular activity. This is how it's going to shape my work and my study and my family relationships and my romantic relationships and how I serve in the world. And so we need to ask if we're engaging in the world in ways that actually compromise our own gospel fluency, our ability to speak or think or act in distinctively and decisively Christian ways. What might it actually look like to to compromise your gospel fluency? Here are just a couple of thoughts. Uh, It could be that your work habits, uh, late nights, working weekends, or actually the, the way you treat your assignments and exams, that particular version of work for those of you who are students, It might be that your work habits actually have a tendency to keep you away from church, from your fellowship group, from serving in other areas of your life, church and elsewhere. As your work habits actually, perhaps even like not not honouring the Sabbath, as your work habits perhaps foster in your heart a sense that you're not dependent on God actually but on yourself and you don't have that interaction with people where you hear God's word and talk about it together in your church life, what might that do to your gospel fluency? Uh, Here's one that was specifically targeted at the morning congregation this morning, but some of you uh, will be parents eventually, and so let me say this one to you as well. Uh, What are uh, Friday night extracurricular activities or Sunday sport commitments, taking your kids away from Christian fellowship, what might that be doing to their gospel fluency? Here's another one. Perhaps the voices that you're listening to on social and political issues are actually just exactly the same as what everybody else in the mainstream liberal inner West listens to without any deliberate kind of gospel-shaped content or engagement. As you let those voices shape what you think about the issues facing our world, what might that be doing to your gospel fluency? Or perhaps are there actually voices you're listening to on religious and spiritual issues that might adversely affect your gospel fluency? There's all kinds of opinions out there about the Christian faith and about who Jesus is and what Christians actually think and believe in the world out there. And it turns out they're not actually all what Christians really think about stuff. Um, uh, We had an interesting conversation in my Tuesday night fellowship group this last week uh, about the kind of standard line that you hear sometimes around Easter, uh, that actually it's just a pagan festival that the church kind of co-opted because they wanted to get more followers. Uh, It turns out that's actually just straightforwardly a myth, From the perspective of history, it's just not true. That's just not what happened. And yet it's such a pervasive story in our world that that can easily shape our own view of our own faith, shaped by the world around us rather than by God's own word, rather than by the voices who actually know the history of our people, of Christian sisters and brothers. What might the voices you're listening to on religious and spiritual issues around you be doing to your gospel fluency? We've got to remember in all of this, though, that that Nehemiah doesn't permanently close those gates, does he? A gate that you close at one time might be opened again at another time. Uh, Right now, you might need to delete Instagram from your phone. But in a year, as you continue to grow in uh, gospel maturity, 
uh, perhaps actually they won't be necessary for you anymore. Right now, you might need to spend a little less time with that friend who just drags you so often into gossiping unhelpfully about other people. In a few years, actually, either you or they might have matured to the point where you can have conversations and that's not a problem. The point isn't to cut yourself off from the world completely and forever. It's to make sure that the gospel continues to be what animates and directs you to depend on God and devote yourself to him in everything. Uh, Finally, it's just worth remembering as well that sometimes it'll be hard for us to see where we've compromised our own gospel fluency. Often these things are easier to see in somebody else than in yourself. And so we're going to need other people to help us here as well. That's yet another reason to make sure that one of the things that that your life is is doing is not cutting you off, actually, from opportunities to hear uh, from your Christian sisters and brothers and pray with them and share life together. We need other people to help us in this. And so there's also a sense in which in order to close the right gates at the right time, you might need to open a gate, actually, to other people uh, in your life, allowing them to speak into your life with the good news of the gospel and even with words of rebuke. Uh, Nehemiah confronts uh, the Israelites who've entered into mixed marriages, uh, did you notice, by pulling out their hair and giving some of them a bit of a beating. Well, maybe actually caring for your own gospel fluency will mean opening the door a little to some gracious hair pulling by your sisters and brothers in the Lord, just to get a little bit pointy and prickly with you and help you see actually where you might be compromising. Uh, We need gates, and Nehemiah gives us uh, some idea of how to use them. Uh, but of course, we get it wrong all the time. There's no, you know, and Israel does this, obviously, and we do it in our day-to-day lives as well. We close the wrong gates at the wrong times. We leave gates open when we should have closed them. We let the world compromise our dependence and our devotion, our gospel fluency. Uh, and so as we draw toward a close, what we need to do actually is to go just a little bit deeper still to see what's actually inside the gates. Point three. Now, the whole trajectory of these final chapters of Nehemiah warns us that gates by themselves... Are not enough. There's no fairy tale ending to the story here, as we've already seen. It kind of ends in this kind of weird anticlimax, with Nehemiah asking God to remember the work that He's done—a a, a hopeful prayer, but a prayer, that, a little bit of a scary prayer. That actually, maybe this won't work. Maybe they're going to forget it again. This is no fairy tale ending. The city's been repopulated, yes. The wall's been rebuilt, yes. But have the people themselves been rebuilt? Uh, Tash Moore, preaching last week, uh, spoke about the zigzag of Israel's history. Do you remember that that idea? Their on-again, off-again faithfulness to their God. And we experience that kind of zigzagging faithfulness in our own lives as well, don't we? Uh, I'm going to read to you from uh, back in chapter 10, the the promises that the Israelites made to God there. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 30, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in merchandise or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we won't buy it from them on the Sabbath. Uh, By chapter 13, about a year later, those are exactly the things that they're doing. Exactly the things that Nehemiah comes back after a time away in the king's court and goes, guys, you're doing exactly what you'd promised God himself that you wouldn't do. And the fact of the matter is that you and I are much different, are we? Even if you've been following Jesus for a long time, How many times have you made a promise to God, I will never do that thing again. I'm so sorry, I'll never do that thing again. Next day, there it is again. That on again, off again faithfulness, that zigzag, alerts us to the fact that while we need gates, they aren't enough. 
Because even when the gates are closed, there's a problem that lies deeper. There's a problem inside the gates. It's the Israelites who are the problem, right? Not the wall, not the gates. It's the Israelites who are the problem. And so for us, the real problem is inside us as well, in our hearts. How does Nehemiah deal with this problem? Uh, I alluded to it just before, but let me read for you. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 25. I contended with them, those who'd entered into mixed marriages, and I cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Nehemiah's response to the zigzagging hearts of God's people is to publicly shame them. Uh, That might work for a time, but if we're going to have lasting change, we actually need something deeper to get a hold of our hearts from the inside where the problem really lies. And that's what God's done for us, isn't it? By giving his own son Uh, The Lord Jesus, of course, had no heart problem. He lived in total dependence on God, never compromising his devotion to his Father. Uh, Like Nehemiah, he contended with sinful people. And even more than Nehemiah, he could quite rightly have responded by publicly shaming them, pulling out their hair, giving them a beating. But instead, what did he do? He bore our shame, he took our beating. At the cross, what he did is to open the gates wide and let all the sin and evil of the world pour in and overwhelm him and he took all of it with him into death so that none of those things can overwhelm you or me when we trust in him. And friends, that's actually the heart of gospel fluency right there. That's what it means to actually know the gospel and be able to apply it to yourself and to your life from beginning to end. If you're going to depend on God and be devoted to God in faithfulness, then sometimes you need to close the gates. But even more than that, you need to open the gates of your own heart to the grace of God in Jesus. To let his love and power rebuild your own zigzagging hearts and lives. And you see, the more and more you do that, the more and more you'll know his grace and his love and his peace. And the easier it will be to see the contours of where it is you need to close things off and where you need to be open. And as you do that, you'll be able to open your gates to the world more and more and to go out into it and to love it and serve it just as he is loved and served. Let's pray that our God would help us to do exactly that. Our great Father, you are so full of love and grace and compassion to us. Uh, We deserve a a Nehemiah, really. We deserve to be uh, beaten, to be shamed. Because you've built us to find our soul's rest in you, to find our purpose and meaning in you. And instead we find it in all kinds of other ways. And even when we follow the Lord Jesus, we compromise ourselves in all kinds of ways. We let the world in and so compromise our dependence on you, our devotion to you. Uh, Beating, shaming, hair pulling, that's the kind of stuff that actually should be coming to us. And yet the Lord Jesus has taken it for us. He's borne our shame. He's taken our beating. He's opened himself to all of the worst that we can do so that we in him might be more and more who you've created us to be, to love and to serve this world as he has. And so, Father, drive the depths of your grace and love for us in Jesus deep into our hearts so that we might long to be more and more devoted to you in all that we do as your children. And so that more and more and more We'll be able to come to him in repentance and faith and live for your glory. We ask this in the power of your spirit, in the name of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ.
Amén.